Our text tonight is verses 3 to 5 in 1 Peter 1, and uh, looking at this enduring hope that we have as believers, even in the very worst of times and troubled times. And uh, last time we were together in this passage, we saw that one of the best ways to keep perspective in our trials as believers is to focus on that eternal inheritance that has been given to us in Christ and to bless the God who has given it to us purely because of his mercy and grace. And that really is the heart of worship, to bless and to adore such a glorious God, the God of our salvation. And as we know, Peter is writing to brethren that are facing truly awful times. They're scattered, they're slandered. We said that they were blamed for the burning of Rome and they were targeted with the most dreadful persecution. And Peter is exhorting them, he's exhorting us to rejoice in the Lord regardless of what is happening around them. He's calling them to a decided and determined expression of praise. And we're reminded really that the believer's joy is not tied and bound up and dependent on circumstances but our joy is there because we have been brought to know God that God is with us and he has promised to provide all that we need and even though the world despises the Lord's people even though we are strangers and outcasts who no longer belong here our citizenship is in heaven we can look to that day when we will be brought to our heavenly home and to be with our saviour and that perspective is not just something that seems far off. It is actually very practical in the way that we live our lives every day and as we face earthly troubles. To look beyond what is happening now to the eternal inheritance and the glory that is ahead. To see Jesus. To be with him. Looking to the God who is sovereign to praise him and delight in him. And how he is with us and will help us. And even though things, friends, may be falling apart here, the believer can have confidence that God is in control and that they are not falling apart in his purposes. But he is bringing all things to the fulfillment and to that great and glorious end. And so Peter writes in a very encouraging way, and we should be encouraged tonight, even though we look around at this world and we see the brokenness and the trouble and the difficulties, we look to our God who is still on the throne, the God who has given us this wonderful salvation. You know, the sadness is really that often, I speak to myself at this point as well, we can be so indifferent to the wonder of this. You know, if we are believers, the day is coming when we will join with the redeemed of all the ages to exalt and to rejoice and to be glad and to praise the living God for the glories and wonders of salvation. And we will be taken up with this forever and will never grow weary of it. Our rejoicing will never be diminished. And yet here, we can often be so apathetic about it. We don't thrill and our hearts are not thrilled as much as they should be. And what a thing it is that we should need to be encouraged and exhorted to glorify our God. And really it only serves to highlight the ongoing battle that we all face with sin and the old man which makes us treat this amazing prospect that is before us with such indifference. 
And I suppose it's my prayer tonight that we would be truly stirred up by the great truths that we find in the text before us. And so just to remind you what we've seen so far, we've seen this outpouring of praise, verses 3 to 5, what we call a doxology. So Peter just bursts out in praise. Truth should always lead to worship. And he demonstrates that praise is always fitting, even when we're in the valley. And so he wants to lift the spirits and hearts of these believers by reminding them again of the greatness and glory of God and the inheritance that he has promised to his people. That inheritance which is incorruptible, undeviled, reserved in heaven for us. And we saw last time the source of that inheritance in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's the one who provides and gives us this inheritance. He's the source. It is God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one true and living God, the God who can only be known through the Savior. And we also saw that Peter uses the full redemptive name for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it has all that the Scriptures reveals concerning him. Lord, he is the sovereign one. Jesus, he is the incarnate one, God stepping down, God taking to himself human flesh. Christ, the anointed king, the Messiah. And so there's a preciousness when we give him his full title, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one in whom all our hope and salvation lies. And so this is the God who is the source of our salvation, the God who is one in essence with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, the one who came to redeem us. And so this inheritance is given to sinners like you and me by this glorious God, and it's all of his grace, all of sovereign grace. And as we've seen in previous times, we are chosen by God before the foundation of the world to be recipients of this great salvation. And surely that is worthy of our praise. Surely that should move us. And then we ask the question as we carry on in our text, but why has God done this? Why would he act in such a way? Well, verse 3 tells us, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope. Mercy. Our God is merciful. It's one of his stunning attributes. It's the same thing that is spoken of by Paul in Titus 3, when he says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Also in Ephesians 2, Paul writes, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. You know, sometimes people struggle to distinguish between mercy and grace. But as sinners, we are in a miserable condition, a wretched condition, and we need mercy. We need someone to show compassion towards our desperate condition. The Bible says that as sinners, we are dead in sin. We are dead in trespasses and sins. We are, we are fallen. We are under the curse. We are at enmity with God. We are ruined, and we are totally unable ourselves to do anything to change that. 
We're lost in sin. We are condemned. We are facing hell. And in that pitiful condition, we need mercy. We need God's compassionate, intentional concern to help us. It's interesting because grace deals with our guilt and sin which causes this condition. But when God gives us mercy, it is to change our condition. So grace changes our position from guilt and condemnation to pardon and deliverance. And mercy takes us from misery and desperation to glory. And so when you think of your salvation, if you're a believer, you can know that God looked upon you and he had compassion. You know, there was nothing in you, nothing in me that was desirable or deserving But God, in the richness of his mercy, set his love and his grace upon you. The compassionate heart of God on full display. God is merciful. 2 Corinthians 1.3 says that he is the father of mercies. You know, you go through the Old Testament and you see this characteristic emphasized again and again. Exodus 34.6, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. Psalm 108, your mercy is great above the heavens. Micah 7 verse 18, he delights in mercy. Maybe one that we know well, Lamentations 3. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. His mercies are new every morning. You know, one of the Puritans, Thomas Watson, said, it is God's mercy that sweetens all of his other attributes. And so our God, who is merciful, gives this mercy sovereignly. He gives it to whomever he will. And if we have been blessed tonight to have received this eternal salvation, how we should praise him for it. God is the source of our salvation, and it's all of his mercy. This saving mercy which is abundant and free and everlasting. And so I ask you tonight, do you thank him? Is your heart filled with thankfulness for what God has done in your life? Do you praise him? Do you bless him? Does your life bring glory to his name and reflect the amazing mercy that you have received? Because God has done this according to his mercy. And you say then, well, how does this mercy become ours? And that's what Peter addresses next. He says in verse 3, who has begotten us again to a living hope. You see, God's mercy had to have a way of bringing about what he wanted to accomplish. And so the way appointed of the Lord was new birth. And so God causes sinners who are dead to be born again, to be given life. And so it's all of him from beginning to end. And as sinners, we are born dead in sin. We've got no spiritual life. We are alienated. We are separated from God. And so something deep and miraculous has to happen for that condition to be changed. And God intervenes by giving new birth and new creation and new life and taking the person from death to life, drawing them into the family of God. It's a wonderful thing when the evidence of that is seen. Friends, we were heirs of wrath, but God makes us joint heirs with Christ. And there's a total transformation, and such a one who who has this work done within them is able to say, I've been given a living hope. 
a living faith. There was a time when I had no spiritual life. I didn't want God. I didn't desire him. But then he intervened and he gave me life. I was dead, but now I'm alive. And I know him and I love him and I trust him and I hope in him and I follow him. I've been born again. You know, we cannot ever really think of being born again without thinking of Nicodemus. And we know those verses so well in John 3. And Jesus makes it so clear to Nicodemus that new birth is something that happens to a person, not something that they do themselves. He says in verses 7 to 8, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so Jesus says, you can't give birth to yourself. Becoming a Christian is something that happens to you. It's a, it's a new creation. It's, it's comparable to the original creation. Something being made out of nothing. Something being produced not by man, but by God. And so God, just as he is the author of all physical life, is also the author of all spiritual life. And this is what Jesus says to Nicodemus. And so just as God had granted Nicodemus physical life, for Nicodemus to be born again, he has to be brought to life spiritually by God. It's what we call regeneration. He needs to be born again, born from above, born of the Spirit. Jesus says, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He needs that miracle of grace. You know, if being a Christian was just like deciding to join a club or a group or a gym or whatever it is, you know, there'd be no need to be born again. You could pick it up and drop it off, but this is totally different. God has to intervene. He has to show us our sin. He has to show us Christ. And this is what the Lord says to Nicodemus. He's got to be made new. Now, if you're familiar with that passage, you know that Nicodemus struggled with that whole idea. And he asks the question. He says, well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And that's the mistake. Jesus is talking about something wonderful, something supernatural. God acting, God dealing with us directly. Nicodemus was trapped in thinking in physical terms. But you know, this is why, dear friends, the gospel is not just for the super intellectual or the able. There's an equal hope for all of us because this is God's work. And that's the glory of the Christian faith. It includes all manner of people. Why? Because it's God's action. It's not man's. It doesn't presuppose anything in us except that we are lost and that we are helpless and that we are hopeless and the Spirit works like the wind as it were. He is pleased to come and he, he works as he pleases sovereignly to grant life. It's a transforming work. And you become aware of the fact that God has been dealing with your soul and that you are new, a new creation. You know, all you and I can realize is this, that there is something that we do not have if we are not truly Christians. And we realize our, our need of something, and there's only one thing that we can do, and that is, as Nicodemus did, and that's go to Jesus. Go to Christ. Just as you are, you have to go to him because he alone has the answer to the deep longing in our souls. 
And we may not understand it. We may not know what it is, but we don't want to argue any longer. We don't want to be clever. We're just aware of our sin and our bankruptcy and our need. And so we run to Jesus. And Christ's redeeming work on the cross, that's the basis. That's the basis of the new birth. There'd be no gospel. There'd be no new birth if Christ had not shed his precious blood. And so the the basis of the new birth is the cross, but the new birth shows itself in a person's life in repentance, turning from sin, and faith in Jesus Christ, believing in him. And so place your faith in him. Run to the fountain of the precious blood of Christ. Be washed, be cleansed, be made new. And when a person is made alive to the reality of their situation and their sin and their position before God and their need to be saved, they see Christ as their only hope. They see Christ as the only saviour of sinners. And God plants within the heart of a person the gifts of repentance and faith. And so they turn from their sin and they trust in Jesus and they are forgiven and reconciled to God and given new life and new perspective and new priorities. You know, later on in this passage in 1 Peter, verses 23 to 25, he says, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. The word was preached to you. And so by God's grace, the word was preached. We were given to hear the word with the inner man and we were enabled to believe in Jesus and the work that God was doing inside was made clear. And so we see that this salvation is of God. And because of this new birth which takes place in the the life of the believer, we are then given this enduring hope. Look at verse 3 again. We have been begotten again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This is really wonderful. This new birth, it is irreversible. It is eternal, it is triumphant, it is unchanging. We are born again to a living, enduring hope. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about how this is in total contrast to the hopes of this world. The hopes of this world are always dead or dying. You know, at their height, the hopes and dreams of people will die either with them or before. To be without Christ is to be without any true hope. But in Christ, we have an undying hope. We have a living hope. We have an enduring hope that will come to full and final glorious realization to be with Jesus. And as 2 Peter 3.13 says, new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That is the enduring hope that we need in times like this, that this broken world is not the end. But we have a hope beyond. And this is the hope that will cause Paul to say, for to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. This hope becomes the the wonderful gain of being with the Lord and, and seeing the Savior and unhindered fellowship and enjoyment of God to be in Emmanuel's land, to be in heaven's glorious splendor. To die is gain as we gain the perfection of eternal holiness and and righteousness and freedom from sin. One writer says, death is not something that a Christian fears. 
Hope is the cloak of the saint wherein he wraps himself when he lays his body down to sleep in death. Why? Because hope is there for the resurrection of the spirit. Hope is there for the resurrection of the body. And this hope is built on the resurrection of Jesus himself from the dead. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. He said in John 14, 9, because I live, you will live also. You think of those verses in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. Christ isn't risen, all of this is pointless. All of what we're about tonight is utterly worthless. But Christ is risen. And he is alive. And our hope is in him. A living hope. The resurrection, the crown of his saving work. His sacrifice on the cross. Having dealt with sin. And the hurt of his people. Satisfying the wrath of God. He has conquered death. And that resurrection life. Is given to us. It is yours tonight. If you're a believer. You know it gives us eternal life. It gives us a living, enduring hope that cannot die. And it's all of mercy. It's all of grace. And see what else he says about this marvelous inheritance. He says it's an enduring, living hope. But it's an enduring hope of an enduring inheritance. What do I mean by that? Well, look at verse 4. To an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away. You know, this should give us great joy. Incorruptible. That means it is not subject to passing away. It's interesting, if you were to go back and look at some of the original language, it speaks of something that is untouched or unaffected by an invading army. You know, we've seen, obviously, the, the horrors of the invasion into Ukraine. You see the destruction and the, the ravaging that is there. It is appalling to see. And even, you know, when you think of the Old Testament, you think of Israel's earthly inheritance in the land of Canaan, it was plundered and ravaged and devastated many times by enemies. Treasures were stolen, riches were lost. One explains that Jerusalem itself was devastated and leveled at least 17 different times throughout history. But the believer has an eternal inheritance that can never be stolen that can never be plundered or ravaged or devastated by the enemy. You know, it's the same picture that the Lord Jesus uses in Matthew 6. He says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. You know, this world cannot offer you that. So many even still are putting their trust in things. You know, goods and bank accounts and wealth and status. But it is all perishable. You know, even if you get through this world with those things until you die, all that you possess will be left behind. But the treasure that God has given, if you're a believer, has given to you this eternal inheritance of salvation, which is still fully to be revealed, is a treasure that can never be stolen, never taken away from you, never ravaged. It is incorruptible. Also, he says it's undefiled. 
meaning it's unstained, it's unpolluted. Everything in this world is defiled and touched by sin. It's broken. The Bible says that the whole creation groans. It is waiting for its adoption, for the glorious manifestation of the sons of God. We live in a polluted world, a sin-sick world. All earthly inheritance is defiled. But we have been given an inheritance that is not stained or defiled in any way. It is glorious. Everything we have in this life is corrupted. You know, think of that new possession that maybe you've got. It'll wear out. You know, your house will grow old and develop problems. Your greatest treasure might be stolen away from you. With the rise in inflation and cost of living, you know, your money stretches less. It all decays and corrupts, but not in heaven. Where is your focus? What is your treasure? Are you laying up for yourself treasure in heaven or are you focusing on what is defiled? So many are living just for now when we need to have that eternal perspective. And he says, it does not fade away, it's unfading. Again, the picture that is often used is the idea of flowers. They look great at first and apparently wives like flowers. In general, tell you, I'm not very good at that. But flowers decay. They wither and they die. But the inheritance that we have been given will never fade. It will never lose its supernatural beauty. Can you imagine? It will never fade. It will never grow old. Heaven has no decay. There is no sin. Nothing perishes. Nothing fades. Just eternal wonder. You know, you think of elsewhere where Peter says that when the chief shepherd appears... The believer will receive a crown of glory that is unfading. And so Peter is saying, look, when you think of it like this, you should bless God, you should adore God, because that inheritance that he has given to you can never be corrupted, never be defiled, it can never fade away. And you know, this enduring hope, this enduring inheritance remains even in troubled times. Look at verse 4. These wonderful words. Reserved in heaven for you. That's wonderful. We live in these uncertain times. Loss is something that we all have to face. How do we know that we won't lose this inheritance? How do we know that someone won't steal it from us? Well, dear believer... This is reserved in heaven for you. And that's incredible. Reserved in heaven for you. You think of these believers. They're under such persecution, such hostility, such opposition. Times that were so hard. And they may have been worried that, you know, they might forfeit this glorious future somehow. And so Peter assures them and says, just as you have been chosen in God. Just as you have been saved by God, you will be kept by God. And this inheritance is reserved in heaven for you by God. The word reserved literally means to God. It is guarded in heaven. This inheritance which is yours by grace is presently and continually being guarded for you. Guarded in heaven. The most safe and secure place that there is. 
Revelation 21, there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. No one can get in to rob or take your treasure. Revelation 22, blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Heaven will never know any invasion, any corruption, any ruin, any harming of its beauty. Heaven will never experience someone breaking in and taking away any of its glories. The treasure is secure. And believer, by the mercy of God, by the grace of God, you have been saved even though you deserve nothing. You have been granted new life, new birth, eternal salvation, the full realization which is reserved in heaven and cannot in any way be touched. It is secure for you. As one says, as you serve the Lord Jesus Christ here, as you live a life of adoring praise and worship, you continue to add to the reality of that treasure and the joy of eternal heaven as you invest in eternity. The treasure is secure. And you say to me, well, what about those who teach that you can lose your salvation? And there are those who say that. Well, Peter answers that in verse 5. He says, it is reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So it's not just the treasure that is guarded and secure, but you are. You are protected by the power of God. The sovereign, almighty power of God is exercised to keep you. The enemy cannot break into heaven and cannot condemn you. God has declared you righteous in his Son. And in Christ, he is so much for you. And God, the holy, infinitely righteous God, says that all is well with you. And so no one or anything can ever alter that. He who has saved us will keep us. He who has begun that good work will complete it. He is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us faultless. Ultimate sovereign power holds the treasure and holds you. And so how much should we rejoice? Sovereign grace holds you. And as the text says, we are kept by the power of God through faith. And so that genuine work of God, it can't be reversed. You continue, and your continued faith in the Lord Jesus is evidence of God's work. You know, when God saved you, he granted you that gift of faith, and as he keeps you, he will sustain that faith in you. As one explains, faith is kindled and preserved and made strong by grace alone. Even the faith is by grace. Grace reaches into the heart and the soul and works spiritual effects. You know, they go together, the power of God and sustained faith. So the believer, not only protected by God, but sustained and persevered and brought through by faith. So friends, why do we not worship God? Why do we not bless him as we should? Why do we not adore him? He has given us this eternal inheritance, this salvation ready to be revealed in fullness when Jesus comes again. 
We glimpse it now, but we eagerly await its fullness in the day to come. God himself has given it to us, not because we deserved it. He had compassion upon us, set his love upon us. He gave us this inheritance in Christ, gave us new life, resurrection life, and therefore a living, enduring hope, this inheritance that can never perish, never fade, totally secure. And so Peter says to the believers then, he says to us now, you who are a spiritual people, you have a wonderful spiritual inheritance ahead, laid up in heaven. Your future is secure. And even though you may feel hemmed in, even though you may face great trouble, even though opposition and persecution may come, the future is sure. And even in the deepest valley while you wait, he is with you. And he will lead you through, and we can praise him even in the darkness. And they needed to remember that, and so do we. We know that we go through trials, and sometimes they come at us with a fierceness that can hurt us and can rock us. And it's then that we need to focus again on the glorious future which awaits. And I am praying for you, and praying for us together that we will be helped to get our eyes off this world and onto the Savior and the glory that is to come. And with that perspective, to be enabled to do most good in this world, to point others to him. Or oh, that the Lord would help us endure in these troubled times by keeping that hope that the sufferings here are certainly not worthy to be compared with the glory which will shall be ours in that day when we see Jesus face to face. You see, the Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. And one day, friends, we'll see it. And what a day it will be reserved in heaven for you, kept by the power of God. Amen.